Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is author Rita Mae Brown, author of Crazy Like a Fox, and her new fox hunting mystery from New York Times bestselling author Rita Mae Brown, an investigation into a missing and valuable object flushes out murder, ghosts, and old family rivalries. Now, Sister Jane Arnold and a pack of four-legged friends must catch the scent of a killer and unearth a long-buried truth. Emmy-nominated screenwriter and poet Rita Mae is the author of 24 Mrs. Murphy series, the Sister Jane Arnold Outfox series, and the Mags Rogers series. She has also authored Ruby Fruit Jungle. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on, Rita Mae. Oh, thank you. It's good to be here. It's really good to have you because I. this is our second week trying to get you here. Uh, you were going to be on the show last week, but I guess there were like big storms in Charlottesville and there, you live on... There, a, there were no communications <laughs> and you couldn't... Get, half of the bridges were flooded. Oh, so, well, I'm, so I'm picturing you on sort of this gentleman's farm. I don't know if I should call it a gentleman's farm, but uh, is, is is it that kind of a farm? farm no, ma'am, hunting? it's a real farm. A real farm. I mean, okay. I truly farm. You, uh-huh. you are the farmer. I am indeed. I've got about yeah. uh, close to 600 acres in timber hay. Um, I, I, I like to do uh, crops that are easy and don't take expensive implements. And um, and horses. Well, I know something about farming because my boyfriend of thirty years was also a farmer, but uh, <laughs> chicken farmer. We uh, tend to be practical. Yeah, exactly. That's true. I know that. I guess my first question is because we're going to be talking about well, this is uh, your new book, but I my as a social worker, um, I know you're in your seventies now, and you're this prolific writer, and I'm really curious about how you get and how you keep up the momentum. Like, how do you keep going after all these years? You write these exciting books. Uh, they're talking about this new book. It dazzles and delights ir- your irresistible style. Readers are going to be crazy about it. How do you just keep on going and sort of maintain the excitement and the energy to write these kinds of books, novels? Well, ma'am, I don't know any better. <laughs> it's the only thing. I know how to do that in farming. But, but I, I'm our I come from bloodlines that have enormous reserves of physical energy. I mean, they're, they're roaring along in their 90s, um, and I, I hope I will be too. But I ne- I'm not bored with life, so how could I be bored doing my job? Yeah. So that's who you are. That's what you do. That's the excitement. But still, isn't there – I'm, I'm in your age group or your age category, so I'm thinking about – I think more about – mortality and aging and yes I too I have a lot of energy do a lot of different kinds of things but doesn't that begin to change you I mean like are there certain points 65 you're 70 um, the whole aging process and thinking about your own mortality you know I really don't I mean I knew I was going to die when I was in grade (laughs) school I mean it's just what happens you never know you never know when, uh, you know, you're going to go through that red exit light. It's just people get older, I guess, and they feel they're closer to it. But I never think about it. You know, when the good Lord jerks my chain, I'm going. That's a great attitude. I mean, I, I, I really don't know many people who have that kind of an attitude. That's terrific. I mean, is, 
then maybe I'll ask you another question sort of related to that. Has your writing changed as you've gotten older? I mean, obviously, if you have more experience, you've done a lot more things, more relationships. Uh, you know, I'm, uh, I'm assuming there's just a whole lot of things that have been added to, uh, to, to what you do and who you are and that that would impact your writing. Well, the first thing I think of is craft. Of course, you get better and better at your craft because you've been doing it longer and longer. Um, in terms of subject matter, I, I think I'm able now to create living, breathing characters from a great range. When you're young, you tend to be able to write only about the young, and the old characters are not so fully realized because you can't imagine what it is, truthfully. But now I'm at a point where I know and, uh, and I can do it. Uh, and writers, it's one of the art forms where you get better as you get older, whereas that's often not true of the art forms where you can be a child prodigy like music. Um, it is for some, it isn't for others. But for a writer to really get to the peak of their craft, they've got to get old. So what are those experiences, would you say, that have helped you to get to the peak of your craft? Learning Greek and Latin. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's the basis of everything for me. That and Anglo-Saxon, because that's, first of all, it's the basis of our culture. But secondly, it is the great underpinning of English, and English is my tool. So I knew very young I was going to have to knuckle under and take decades to learn these other languages, and I did. Um, I'm not saying I was great at it, but I did. I did win one Latin translation award in college, which I, I, I always come back to because I'm still so proud of it. <laughs> but um, You should be, yeah. I mean, I have, I have a tremendous foundation. You have a Ph.D. in politics as well? Well, yeah, but that, who cares? I but mean, politics is ba- basically cleaning the sewer. <laughs> well, that's true. But still, a Ph.D. in politics, uh, I was impressed by that. I don't know. That was a long time ago, I guess, when you uh, Columbia or here in New York City. Uh, it, I was at the university without walls, um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, I was in New York, and then I went down to Washington because I realized, of course, I didn't have a penny, but I realized here I am thinking about government. Why don't I go to the source? And I did, and I learned an enormous amount. Um, our government is actually very flexible, can be, um, and, at, of course, at that time, I think there were more responsible people in it. Uh, I think that's true. Uh, I was going to ask you, what do you... What haven't you done? I mean, I, you know, I've, I was reading uh, your history and what you've done and accomplished and all of those kinds of things. But are there things that you would like to do that you haven't done? I would like to see Santa Sofia in Istanbul. I, I, and, and I would like to see Patagonia. But I'm not. I'm not if I don't, that's fine. Um, I, I more than anything would hope that I can do some good things for the Thoroughbred Retirement Fund and things for animals because that's what I think what's, well, it is, it's what's closest to my heart, trying to help those who can't speak. Well, have you done a lot of traveling? Do you do a lot of traveling? I did when I was young because book, that's when book tours were two and three weeks at a crack and you went all over, including you went to other countries. Now it's too expensive. They'll only do it like, let's say you're a secretary of state and you wrote your memoirs. Yeah, you'll get one of those tours. But the rest of us, no, those, that isn't going to happen anymore. Um, so I saw a lot of the world. I'm very grateful to have done it. Uh, I learned a lot. Every country does at least one or two things better than we do. There's no question. You learn. Uh, but, boy, you're always glad to come home. Yeah. 
I would agree with that. I travel a lot. Um, so now you sort of, well, it sounds like anyway that that's, I was going to ask you because that was, those were different kinds of tours that you took, um, you know, to promote your books. So what about the internet? How is that impacted on? I don't know because I don't have a computer. You really don't have a computer. Nah, I don't. What do I need one for? <laughs> well, I'm I'm addicted to my computer, so okay. I'm I. Uh, it surprises me that you don't have one. So, do you type on a typewriter, or do you write longhand? I usually use my Mont Blanc pen, my diplomat Mont Blanc pen mm-hmm. that is decades old. And uh, but sometimes I'll use a typewriter. You know, if I try to clean things up, I will. But um, I, I mean, a computer is totally useless to me. Uh, If I'm going to do research, I'm going to try to go to the original documents anytime I can Uh, and uh, just to touch some of these things is extraordinary. I once held letters that Dolly Madison wrote to her sister and there were tear marks on them. No internet can ever do that for you. So you're going, you actually go, where do you go? Do you, I mean, to if I can, I will. I mean, I, I can't get to England. Well, I mean, I can, but it, it, it would be an unnecessary expense to look at some of the stuff I'd like to see there. But if it has anything to do with bloodlines or horses or topography or architecture uh, or documents, I'm going to go. But I'm just getting back to the Internet thing because all right, you don't have a computer yourself. But as a writer, obviously, the Internet has affected the world and, and you know, in terms of just the way we are operating system. So just, I guess the question would be, like, how do you, how has that impacted other writers or just the whole community of writers as you see it? Young I writers. I can't speak for them, but I think in ways it's been very damaging because people fiddle with their work too much. You know, you can see it. They're killing their babies, really. They'll do something, and then, you know, they'll come back that night, and they'll move stuff around or this or that, or they're, they're editing while they're writing. That's, that's not a really smart thing to do. Write the book. Set it aside. Don't even look at it. Come back two or three weeks later. You'll write a better book. So who are the young writers today that you admire, or are there any? There are very few because I don't think they have the language skills. Um, I mean, I, I think the subject matter is extremely interesting. But basically, it's noun, verb, direct object. There's not a lot really exciting there. Um, but there are some people that I think are really tackling intensely difficult things who do have a sense of language and how people speak idiosyncratic English. One of those is Karen Slaughter, who writes very dark books. I mean, she can drive a plot. The other person that can drive a plot like a freight train is Bernard Cornwell. Honest to God, I don't think anybody can touch him. But um, I read more, I would say, poets. Like, I like to read Rita Dove, and I I think I get a bit more there. Um, So much of fiction today is... They run with the pack. I don't know how else to describe it, and I sound like I'm being critical. And I guess in a way I am. I would just like to see more individuality. And what you're saying, I guess what you're saying is you see less individuality. Is that it? Less yeah, creativity. Yeah, yeah, uniqueness. You know, There's everybody not the, seems yeah. to be uh, to the left of center and very proud of it, and they put this stuff in their books. God damn it, it's fiction, not propaganda. It doesn't belong there. Mm-hmm. 
And you, yeah, I guess. And so you see that with most of these young writers. Yeah, they, they, the, they have to parade their politically correct credentials. That just kills a story. Um, am I against them? No, of course not. But don't put it in your story. People don't go around. I mean, maybe they do in the big cities when they're young, but they're not really motivated by ideology. Well, you, I guess when you were younger, as I, you, you were very much involved in politics, right? Feminist movement. Um, let's start with that. Uh, in, in the 60s uh, and, uh, and 70s. Um, and I assume that that had some kind of an impact on your writing as well. No, it didn't have any impact at all on my fiction, but I, I did political articles and this and that, and I realized I had to learn the language of the left or nobody was ever going to look at it. So I did. I mean, I find it a bit of a specious language, but, but I think I reached, reached people. I hope I did anyway. But I'm real basic, ma'am. It's food, clothing, shelter, getting a good job. Consciousness raising and all that kind of stuff, that may be wonderful, but emotions have nothing to do in my life with politics. You deliver a service. It's substantive. It's not emotional. And so where we are now, it's pretty much all emotional. How do you think that's related to your, where you came from, your, your growing up? You were... I, was a, I was a farmer. You don't get any more basic than that. Mm. You know, here people are worried about people understanding them. For God's sakes, we don't even understand ourselves. And you're asking somebody else to understand you? I mean, to me, it's, it's, it, it is, it's, it's sweet and it's young and I guess people will learn that's not the way the world works. But what really matters, look, ma'am, there are 1.5 million children who sleep on the streets of America every night. I'm, if you feel bad or disturbed about something, okay. But don't you care about these kids? Don't you care about something real? I do. Actually, I'm in New York City. I see those kids every day. You're, you're, yeah, you're absolutely right. But, but, but that's, that's not uh, motivating the yeah, young. You think the young are more narcissistic? Is that what you're saying? Or? I think they're far more privileged. Um, mm-hmm. And we were far more privileged than our parents and grandparents. I know that. I do. But I am thrilled that I at least got to fight about uh, women getting good jobs, equal pay, which, of course, we still don't have, but it's better than when I was a kid, and it was 59 cents a woman earned to every male dollar. I, mean, I think now we're up to, what, 70 cents maybe? <laughs> but yeah, a little, I think it's a little more than that, but, yeah, we are. But, but those were the issues that motivated me, uh, and I think we were able to do something. Is there lots left to do? There always will be. This is an enormous country. We're never going to run out of issues to fix. But um, I'm, I'm proud of that work, and I look at some of the people that have just left us, like Kate Millett and Betty Friedan, who I loathed, but she was brilliant. Um, it, it was real stuff. You loathed her, why? Because she, what, she when you were in, uh, was it now? Or she she laid you out? She was terrifically anti-gay, um, and she was also vain beyond belief. I mean, she wanted to be the only feminist in the room, essentially. <laughs> you know, everybody was supposed to pay attention to her. But she was brilliant. There's no question she was brilliant. And I, I admire that as much as I couldn't stand her personally. But she was always making fun of me because I was a lot younger than she was, and I was Southern. And so she would assume I was stupid and call me a redneck and this and that. And one time I just sort of looked at her and I said, Betty, this redneck reads Latin and Greek. Can you? Shut her right up. 
Well, she was from, what, Peoria, Illinois? Yeah. I think so, yeah. The great thing about Peoria is not Betty. It's that it makes John Deere tractors. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I told her that, too. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, but then anyway, I read somewhere these- you made up later on, 20 years later or whatever, or did you? Or I'm sorry, I missed that part. I said I had read somewhere that, you know, that you two had made up or no, sort of but what reconciled did, your which, difference. Okay, yeah. And we'll give her enormous credit. We were giving speeches at the Marin uh, Auditorium, which is beautiful, and um, we, were, they were, we were sitting on chairs in front of this huge audience. And uh, she didn't exactly say, I wronged you personally. That's okay. You know, that's, that's hard for her to do. But she did say she was wrong about the issue of lesbianism, and she wished she had not been so uh, against it. And I gave her great credit for that because it was hard for her to do. Yeah, well, speaking of, so lesbian, but you also say, or you, when people refer to you as a lesbian writer, that, that, that you are not a lesbian writer, or that's well, not how you I def- think that yeah. I think that throws people in the ghettos of literature. What you're saying to everybody else is, you don't really have to read this. This, isn't, this has no relationship to you. Um, it's the ghettoization of literature. Um, lot, everybody's life has a relationship to somebody or something. You know, it's like you go into a bookstore now, there's black literature. Or of course, now they, they've changed it to Afro-American. Um, there's gay literature. There's this. and It's all bull. You either write a good book or you don't. I mean, does that, did anybody ever say about Norman Mailer, white Jewish writer? Well, they may have. But was there a, was there a yeah. section in the bookstore that says white Jewish writers? Male? No. <laughs> No, I haven't seen that section. That's true. Yeah, well, well it's, a, but, it's, a, it's a way to diminish people. Or maybe it's just a way to direct them so that you understand where they're coming from. I hope you're right. <laughs> but, yeah, it doesn't sound like you agree. I, I, I mean, I, I, I'm thinking when I go to a bookstore, I go to, well, when I go to a bookstore, I probably do kind of hone in on, you know, Gay writers, lesbian writers, women writers, female writers, mothers, you know, whatever the category happens to be. And, it, and it's, it, it, I, I, I just don't believe in those categories. I don't at all. I mean, I think, I think they're part of oppression. And I do not want my oppressor to define me. It makes you strong, though, doesn't it? I mean, like, if you have it, to fight against them, Yeah. It made me strong, <laughs> but, but I think my youth made me strong. I mean, I started out, you know, I was in an orphanage, and don't remember it at all, but got adopted. So I, I had to learn early to, to fight for myself, and I did. And then as I got a little older, I looked around, and I realized, boy, there were people a lot worse off than I was. So let's fight. Let's have a good fight here and, and see what we can do to make things better. Okay. Well, what, about, what about your family? What about your parents? What was your relationship with them? Benign neglect. <laughs> I mean, the great thing, well, well, they adopted me. I was adopted my, by my first cousin once removed, my, mo- my mother, Jutes, the woman I consider my mother. And um, pretty much I was left alone and to do what I wanted, which was great. Um, now, of course, she'd be arrested because we walked three miles to school and we walked back. And, and you, you could do those things then. There, weren't as, there wasn't as much traffic when we were out in the country, but... You know, you were out of the house when the sun came up, and you were back in the house when the sun went down. Um, there was none of this 
concern that you wouldn't be able to fend for yourself. You learned, and you had fun. I mean, we all had fun. But um, my mother and I were so completely different. I know it was difficult for her. Um, she was very social, very political, um, very fashion-oriented, very feminine, um, and great fun. My, my mother was fabulous fun, so was Dad. But here I was. I just wanted to be with animals and books. So it was, and she, she, she had to struggle. Was she kind to you? Most times she was. Most times she was. Um, you know, she had her moments. I think any mother does because you pluck their last nerve as a kid. You don't know what you're doing. Um, I was closer to Dad, really. But they were decent, and they were good, and they, uh, they took in other children who had uh, no homes or um, their parents had died. And they, they were, I often think of my parents, they were really, truly Christian. Um, and they never spoke of it. They never bragged about what they did, and they didn't have a lot of money, uh, whereas my natural mother came from enormous wealth. Uh, but I, I often think, well, I'd be as good a person as they were in terms of sharing and giving. And I don't know that I am. What would you say? Because now you've had, oh, oh I hear the dog. Yeah, um, you, you. A lo- sort of, <laughs> um, you've sort of, you, I mean, you've had, I don't want to say a lifetime, but you've had a long time to kind of try to be as sharing and giving as they are. Um, where do you think you've been sort of not able to maybe accomplish what you wanted to do. In, well, in that I was year, never in able arena. to take in children because being gay, they wouldn't let you. In the state of Virginia, you still can't adopt a child as a gay person. Um, and I always wanted to pass along my good fortune by maybe, you know, ha- taking in some others. I couldn't do that. So I did the next best thing. I mean, I take in all these stray animals and get them healthy and get them homes and this and that, including horses. And uh, I don't know, I just, I just feel like we're all God's creatures and let's do what we can. I don't care what somebody's background is. I don't care about any of that. If they need a hand, you give it to them. Is there anything you think, and this is probably my last question because we only have three minutes left, but um, if you weren't writing, is that, you know, you've accomplished all of this, obviously, and done so many things related to your writing and your writing, and you've given so much. But is there? Do you, do you ever sit and think, well, what would I do if I weren't writing? Is there something else I would like to have done or had the opportunity to do? Actually, there were three things that maybe I could have done. I would have loved to have been a professional huntsman, or I would love to have been an investment banker and follow money around the world and hopefully make a lot of it and then be able to write checks because that's about one of the most helpful things you can do. Um, and the third thing is if neither of those could materialize, I think I would have liked to have gone into the military now, not then, because women just had no opportunities whatsoever. Um, but, you know, I, my, my whole point is, well, first of all, let's have a good time. I, I mean, make a joyful noise unto the Lord, that, that line in Isaiah. And I'm not real religious, but enough to know I should be grateful. And, uh, you know, however you do it, do it. Sometimes you just need to listen to somebody. And that's, that's a gift. Well, I really enjoyed talking to you today, getting sort of getting to know you. Um, Crazy Like a Fox, your new book, Rita Mae Brown. Uh, we can buy it online, bookstores everywhere. Uh, some people, we are. I buy my books online um, and at bookstores. Uh, I just is is there well any kind of a website 
through your publisher that people can go to? Yeah, to I think my publishers do. I mean, obviously, I don't, but my but publisher does. And <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm very fortunate in my publisher. Uh, you know, they've had to deal with some tremendous shifts in the industry. I think they've done a good job. Um, well, you too. I mean, we've, we've seen a lot of change. Yes, we've seen a lot of change. You're absolutely right. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Oh, thank you. Rita Mae Brown, Crazy Like a Fox. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts, we'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What if there was a radio show that could demonstrate how we can cut your taxes in half without diminishing needed government services? One that could explain how to create tens of millions of jobs at no cost to taxpayers, as well as fantastic yet easily affordable health care. Side effects include cutting crime rates nationwide, providing better education for our children, international peace and harmony, and protecting your private personal data from government intrusion. Tune in to Libertarians Working for you with Arvind Vora, Tuesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Variety. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is Dr. Don Kingston. PhD, uh, professor of nursing and OBGYN at the uh, University of Calgary. Uh, Our topic today is postpartum depression. Recently, model Chrissy Teigen shared her story about her struggles with postpartum depression. This was in Cosmopolitan and Us Magazine. Dr. Don Kingston, associate professor at the University of Calgary and co-creator of Canada's first perinatal mental health screening guidelines, says the debilitating effects of PPD, which is postpartum depression, might have been circumvented had she understood that her history of infertility, this is Chrissy Teigen, put her in a high risk 
category for PPD. Seeking help early could give pregnant women and their partners an opportunity to find a therapist to help them navigate the difficult emotions they may be experiencing and head off worse problems down the road. Dr. Kingston is a professor of nursing at the University of Calgary and an adjunct associate professor in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the University of Alberta. A former epidemiologist with the Maternal and Infant Health Surveillance Division of the Public Health Agency of Canada, Dr. Kingston started her career as a neonatal intensive care nurse. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you here, Dr. Kingston. Thank you, Catherine. I'm delighted to be here to chat about this subject today. Yeah, well, you have quite an impressive bio or resume. Uh, You know, talking about postpartum depression, I guess my first question is, how prevalent is PPD um, uh, here in the United States as well as in Canada? Mm -hmm. We see postpartum depression in anywhere from 13 to 20% of women. And that rate is, yes, in the U.S. and Canada. We also see that quite internationally as well. So the rates are quite similar globally. I think, too, Catherine, just to add on... Oh, sorry. The other no, um, the other piece that we're seeing more is antenatal depression and anxiety as well. And we're seeing the rates of depression and anxiety in pregnant women are actually higher than they are in the postpartum period. So it's becoming more and more of a concern as well. So why do you think that is? Or what what are the reasons for that? I think we're just we're just starting to track it more. We have had such a focus on postpartum depression and when we start to look at the science, the biological science, the epidemiology, the patterns and trends that we're seeing across pregnancy into postpartum and into early childhood period, we're starting to really understand that for most women who have postpartum depression, as high as 50 to 80%, their symptoms actually started in pregnancy. We're seeing higher rates there and earlier start, and that's really having an impact too in terms of how we think about postpartum depression and shifting it to earlier screening and earlier treatment. When you talk about a be- that you're finding, well, obviously this finding that there is a high rate of depression while a woman is pregnant. Um, is that only attributed to the fact that we're able that you have the screening skills to be able to do it, or that maybe there just there is also a higher rate of depression in pregnant women for other reasons? Maybe more stress today. Uh, that could be one example. Um, is that the case, or? That's a really good question, Catherine, and I don't think that we've got the science behind that to make that conclusion. I think as you would do, and, and I certainly am leaning in that direction, I would say this is quite likely that we're seeing a lot more anxiety and depression for that reason. You know, we see moms that really are working so hard and are so concerned about being perfect, about being ideal, huge expectations um, on being healthy in pregnancy, 
avoiding postpartum depression, setting themselves and their family up well. And I think that those kinds of expectations are really driving women um, to higher levels of anxiety. We just don't have the science behind us to be able to look at long-term patterns on that. What we do know is that when women have anxiety or depression in pregnancy, most of them, well, half of them, sorry, carry on into the postpartum period. 40% still have symptoms when their child goes to school at age four or five. And then one really recent study that came out that showed that even 20 years later, women that had prenatal anxiety or depression still had it at that time if they didn't receive treatment or care. So we're starting to see this really long, enduring kind of chronic pattern that really goes against what we always thought, which was, you know, anxiety and depression in this period of time is driven mostly hormonally and it self-resolves. It goes away over time. We're just finding that that simply isn't the way it is. I'm wondering, as I'm listening to you talk, that perhaps you think about the demographics of new moms, for instance, has changed, let's say, over the past 20 years. Women are having children at a later age, in their late 30s, even early 40s, even middle 40s. So you have old moms, uh, moms who are also probably working, um, you know, stressful jobs. Uh, they also may not be, I don't want to say not be as healthy, but the expectation is for them to be thin when they're pregnant, to be exercising, this idea of perfectionism. There's a should, there are shoulds, uh-huh. you know, in terms of how you should be pregnant and what, you know, what you should look like and, as I say, what you should be eating, um, perhaps that weren't there, uh, I don't know, 30 years ago or the last generation. Uh-huh. And that puts a lot of pressure on them. And, of course, can would seem to me be one of the causal factors for depression. That's one thing. But the question would be like, when we say depression, do you mean a clinical depression as in the, um, like a clinical depression, like in the diagnostic and uh, manual um, or what, how are we defining depression, anti-depression or postpartum depression, I guess is what I'm asking you. Mm-hmm. We're seeing, um, Catherine, trends not uh, not just in the most severe moms, so the most clinically severe moms, clinically diagnosed, on medication, severe symptoms. And that's kind of always been our focus in the postpartum depression. You know, we want to find those mothers, we want to treat them, we want to help them uh, to have healthy relationships with their children and with their partners and family. What we're seeing in recent work, in our recent research, is is the subclinical symptoms are also troublesome. In other words, if a mom or if a pregnant woman or a postpartum mom has low-level symptoms, symptoms that aren't keeping her from functioning on a daily basis, but they're distressing enough that they're just low-level. They might not even be high enough to be caught by a physician. But they're low-level, they carry on over time, that those symptoms have almost the same impact on the woman and on her children as the severe symptoms. And that's really um, bringing a whole other dimension when we start to think about screening, for example. Most of the time, we have a cutoff point. We would say if you 
or answer certain questions about depression or anxiety, and you score uh, high above a certain level indicating that you've got high symptoms, then you are the group that we need to focus on and get help for immediately. But what it's missing is this group that are just under the cutoff, the women that aren't being detected, they might have, they might experience symptoms like some teariness, they might feel high stress, they might have constant worry, they might be able to still uh, care for their family, if they're pregnant they might still be going to work, but they just know that things aren't right. Those women are just as much at risk in terms of having prolonged symptoms and in terms also of that impacting family and child outcomes. Give us an example of some of those things, that actually that, the kinds of warning signs when you are screening these women. So what would be the question and what would be the answers? Right. Uh, so trying, you know, some, yeah. yeah, so some of the key symptoms, physical are uh, only a part of it. So women would say they experience low energy, exhausted. So that's kind of the physical element of it. But many of the others are more emotional health symptoms, things like I feel irritable, I feel angry, I don't know why, I just feel angry, I don't feel like I have joy in my life, I feel like crying, it's hard to make decisions, it's hard to concentrate, I feel keyed up all the time and worried, I just can't, I feel restless, I just can't deal with that, with the anxiety, I just can't get it under control. And those symptoms, you know, when women look at, for example, in a, a, a book or prenatal classes, they might be given a list of symptoms of postpartum depression, for example. But many women can't relate to that because they don't understand that you don't have to have all of them. They're not all as severe. They all have different levels. And, but, but they can, they, they, the levels can vary from mild to severe. But the rule of thumb that we have just generally in mental health is if you have a symptom for two weeks or more, that's, you know, that you, it's just not alleviating, then that's the time to check in with your doctor. Because at this point, in most states and certainly in Canada as well, there just isn't routine screening put in place as part of a routine prenatal visit or a routine follow-up postpartum new mother visit. Don't you think that has to do with expectation also? I think and some mothers uh, feel like, well, I'm, I should be happy that I'm pregnant. The expectation is that I, and a shame that I'm not feeling great about myself or having this baby or whatever, you know, the negative feelings. As an expectant mother, I shouldn't be having these negative feelings. So I'm, I'm not going to tell my doctor or my nurse or uh, or even my partner sometimes I think that happens and, and that that's an issue because there is that expectation Oh, you're pregnant, and oh, you're so lucky, and 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 so you women don't want to com- you know complain or talk about some of these symptoms. Absolutely, and those are the those are big concerns in terms of things that keep women silent and keep them from reaching out for help. And that's part that's a, a huge issue in a system, a health system, both in Canada and in the U.S that doesn't routinely ask. You know, we rely on women to bring forward when they're struggling emotionally, and yet 
it's just something that they can't do. And in fact, in our work, we find that two out of three women will not talk to their doctor about their emotional health concerns for these very reasons. And we also find on the other side that women are more able to talk about mental health challenges if they've been told or if they know that other women are struggling as well. So that knowledge, that sort of ability to share that other women struggle with this, it's pretty common. In fact, anxiety and depression are the most common complications of pregnancy and in the postpartum period. If women knew that, then it would give them some uh, more freedom and release to come forward to say, I'm struggling with this as well. Women have to be given, I think this is what you're saying, they have to be given permission. And it's really up to the healthcare provider to do that, I assume, that that just becomes a matter of routine when they're <laughs> during the vi- uh, Yeah. And, yeah. And give, so once you do that, I mean, I don't know exactly what the, I mean, that's obviously what you're all about and what you're working on, uh, trying to make that a reality. And it's not. Um, but I, I think that... Um, the the healthcare, the as I said, the physicians, the nurses who uh, make these assumptions that oh, we, you are just you know you should be happy and you you know you're happy that you're pregnant and so women don't have permission to talk about those negative feelings. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. For sure, we we've heard stories even of women nurses uh, <laughs> who have gone to their family physician and have said. I think I have postpartum depression and the physician has said, no, no, you don't, <laughs> you don't, you don't, you're functioning well, you look together, you have this appearance like you have it all together. But that's the, that's part of it. Exactly what you said, Catherine, women hide behind this shell, right? They're afraid of being found out because they feel like they shouldn't feel like this. And I think what's striking too is when you talk to women who have had postpartum depression, which is what they identify because antenatal depression and anxiety is sort of new on the forefront. But when women who have children who are in their 20s and 30s talk about their experiences with postpartum depression, it's amazing to me that they're still so vivid and that women their whole lives carry this guilt and um, this sense of inadequacy and failure, you know, not remembering sometimes what parts of their parenting in that first year, feeling guilty that they weren't all as available to their child as they wanted to be, feeling guilty sometimes for even getting pregnant. And women carry these things forward for years, which is, again, another reason why it's so important to put this in perspective in terms of it being common, you know, one in four women experience depression or anxiety when they're pregnant and into postpartum. This is common. And when people like uh, Chrissy Teigen speak out or when your neighbor uh, has uh, courage and speaks to you about her situation, that's how you bust the stigma. It's the stories. It's the understanding that this is common and many women struggle with it. That sense of not being alone. It's okay. And then, of course, I guess the second part of that has to be, and there is help. 
I mean, mm-hmm. and is there help? So that's a, that's my, uh, I guess my question is, uh, you know, once that a woman feels that she can confide in her healthcare provider and and, and tell them that uh, you know, and about her feelings of vulnerability and and um, depression, then what? What's the next step? Right. There's no question that our mental health systems are in trouble when it comes to offering timely help that's really um, matched to a woman's need at that point and her what she wants in terms of mental health care. I think there's two pieces to this that we're seeing. Number one, it's really only about 5 to 8% of women that actually need a medication that need to go on an antidepressant. And sometimes that is not, doesn't have to be a long-term thing. Sometimes it's just kind of to uh, get things back on track and help them to get coping again. So we, a lot of women don't talk to their provider or their healthcare provider, nurse, physician, obstetrician about how they're doing because they are afraid of being put on an antidepressant. But for most women, they don't need to do that. The other piece then is, our, you know, we're, we're discovering that as many as 70% of women really want the chance to kind of manage this on their own. They don't necessarily want professional help. And I think that's an important um, point because more and more we want to manage our own health care and women want to try and manage their emotional health as well. There are things that can help, even things like meditation and mindfulness-based stress reduction, being outside in nature, having a friend to talk to, exercise, aerobic exercise, even yoga. All of these things have evidence behind them to suggest that they can either prevent depression or anxiety or they can reduce symptoms if a woman is struggling in that way. Alternatively, then, if a woman needs psychological therapy or needs a talking therapy, that's where we really start to see um, problems in the healthcare system as well because we just don't have capacity. But what our team is working on and it, what is quite popular and useful, in fact, as part of routine care in Australia and the United Kingdom is this whole idea of online therapy. And so there are some very good online therapies that are available for either free or very cheaply, like $60 for six months, much so cheaper. Uh, than, uh, take us through ahead. an online, just take us through an online therapy. What would that entail? Let's say you're recommending yeah. therapy and it's going to be online, not in person. Uh, how does that work? It's women like it because it's something that they can do at home anytime. Women would get it on their computer or their smartphone. It would be six or seven modules. And it walks people through sort of what their symptoms are, how to deal, how to understand their symptoms, and then how to cope better. A big part of therapy is education. And so these online modules offer the opportunity to get that kind of education on how to cope really well. And often they're very personalized, very interactive, and quite quick and easy to do. So we've developed a pregnancy set 
there are others that are available, as I mentioned, that aren't specific to pregnancy or postpartum, but that are out there currently. And a couple of them would be This Way Up out of Australia. There's another one called E-Couch out of Australia. And then um, Mind... Oh, sorry, I'm losing... I just lost the title of it. Mood Gem is the other one. But these are the two... These are two of the main ones, yeah. This Way Up, E-Couch. E-Couch and Mood Gem. Those would be the three. There's also one called... My compass. Okay. Now, are these now and, these are related to pregnancy? The, the ones that you just these mentioned. Ones, these yeah. ones are not. Oh, um, these ones. The are. one that we are building is, and it will be available in a few months. But these ones are are for anybody. Anybody can come into them, and again, they can be accessed at any time from any place. They're quite cheap. And there's a decade of evidence behind them, of trials behind most of these programs that show that they're effective in reducing anxiety and depression. We're just not as used to thinking about it in the North American context as much. We're not, but this gives quick access so if someone is struggling, even if they have an appointment with, for example, a physician or a psychiatrist down the road, they might have a several-month wait. This is something that they can even do in the meantime. And there's good evidence that online programs can be as effective as face-to-face therapy. Sometimes people prefer them. They finish them. Um, They're more apt to finish them. Sometimes people drop out of a face-to-face therapy. They're just easier for women in this category, women that might have other children, they're working, maybe they're pregnant, they're tired. It's an easy option. That's fantastic. I mean, that's the practical, easy, safe, uh, inexpensive, and it really fits into, I would assume, this younger generation of women because that's what they're used to also. I mean, this, this, uh, you know, the internet generation of going to the internet and going online uh, to resolve and solve problems. So it just sort of fits into that psyche, I would imagine. We only have a couple minutes left. So what do we want to leave our listeners with? Um, Literally two minutes left. I think one of the biggest things at this point, Catherine, the U.S. and Canada are moving towards integrating um, mental health care as part of a prenatal visit. New guidelines came out in the U.S. a year ago recommending that. But in the meantime, if women are struggling, it's so easy for them not to talk to their doctor about it. They get sidetracked. Maybe somebody reassures them that they're okay. A good friend might say, it's fine. You're just, this is normal for pregnancy. But if a woman has those sort of niggling feelings like, I just don't think this is right. I'm not coping well. I would strongly encourage her to talk to her family physician or her uh, prenatal care provider about it. Bring the issue up. That's the way to start getting help, to start getting a handle on this. Great advice. And we do have to say goodbye. And and, uh, Dr. Don Kingston, and we've been talking about postpartum depression today. Thank you so much for being on the show. Um, My pleasure. Thank you. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show.
We hope you have enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. 